Thank you, girls, for that ministry. As um, Rob was speaking and uh, we were hearing a testimony of witnessing, I couldn't help but add just a footnote to that. On Saturday night, I was over at the Holy Cross Hospital because uh, my son Mark was there. And uh, we were waiting in the emergency ward and they uh, were treating people who come into a trauma center. And two guys came in who were motorcycle riders. And uh, one couldn't walk because he had shattered his leg and they had to do surgery on his foot. They were coming off the off-ramp on I-5. They were from Michigan. One of them was 19, one of them was 20 years old, and they decided to go to California on a motorcycle. So they came wheeling off the freeway at about 50 miles an hour and lost it. They didn't have their helmets on, and the guy who was riding, the other guy was sitting behind him, put his foot out to try to stop from dumping the bike and just shattered his leg, and the bike popped back up and maintained its control 50 miles an hour. And so only the one fellow was hurt, and the guy sitting behind him wasn't. So uh, I just listened to them sort of tell the story, and then I asked the guy to come and chat with me for a minute, the one who was able to walk while the doctors were working on his friend. And I said to him, I said, uh, why do you think uh, that bike stayed upright? Why do you think that happened? Why do you think it didn't dump and you could have been killed? He said, oh, I think it was intervention. I'm not sure who intervention is, but I said, uh, I said uh, intervention by whom? He said, well, uh, some people don't want to say it, you know, they just, I said, you mean God? He said, yeah, God. I said, you really think God intervened in your life to keep you from having an accident? That's pretty serious. You think, I said, you think God is that concerned about you? It was a great opportunity, right? I mean, he, I, so I opened, I, I, he said to him, yeah, he said, I, I believe in God. And he reached in his black leather motorcycle jacket and took out a little inexpensive New Testament. And he said, look at this. I said, where'd you get that? He said, my grandfather gave it to me when I left. He said, I don't know what you're going to do, son, but take this, will you please? And here was a little note in the front of his Bible said to Steve from Grandpa. And I said, would you open that little New Testament to James chapter 4 and read something for me? Sure. So I helped him find James. This is what he, this is what he read. Go to now, you that say today or tomorrow will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. You know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. He said, wow. He said, you mean, this is because the Lord willed this? I said, yeah. I said, now, doesn't that make you think seriously about life? If God spared your life, do you think he had a purpose? And so I had the opportunity to talk to him about Christ and find out about his background. He was in church Sunday morning and Sunday night at Grace Church. And I just want you to know that because I want you to understand that that's the excitement and the adventure of sharing Jesus Christ in any environment. I mean, if you just learn to train yourself to capture the moment. I mean, this guy was, was really overwhelmed at anything like this that seems such a normal part of life, you ride a motorcycle, you expect it, could all of a sudden become a divine event which could cause him to think about his relationship to the living God. So you take advantage of those opportunities.
because that's what we're all about. This morning, as you know, usually on Mondays I uh, have a chance to speak to you, but uh, the Lord has been sending along some special people, and so I'm going to defer to a servant of God this morning. This is Reverend Joe Stoll, and he is pastor of Highland Park Baptist Church in Southfield, Michigan, which is near near, uh, Detroit. And uh, he's been there five years as pastor. Uh, He's well-known as one who teaches the Word of God and preaches around the country. God's giving him a great ministry these days. I'm very grateful for his friendship. Some of you heard him preach yesterday at Grace Community Church. And uh, we want to welcome him to the Master's College. College, Let's give him a full welcome and tell him we're glad he's here. Thank you, John, and good morning. I'm delighted to be here and to share just a few minutes of some life-changing realities from the Word of God. My first ministry right out of seminary was in a church planting situation. Went to Springfield, Ohio. There were 35 people planting a church. I became their first pastor. They were my first people. It was a happy experience. We began meeting in a school cafeteria. Soon we were graduated from the cafeteria to the gymnasium. You can imagine the kind of worship atmosphere that we had there. But we learned soon that worship was God's people gathering together to give praise to Him and the atmosphere really didn't make that much difference and then the day came when we bought a piece of property the foundations were dug and I was so excited as a young pastor to see this dream come true that every day I went by the property to watch this building go up and I'll never forget the day that the wall to the worship center went up 20 feet high and I drove by the property and I saw that wall there and I thought man alive and I went down to the bank where I was going to do some banking and ran across the vice president who had helped us put our loan package together. And I said, hey, have you been by the property lately? He said, yeah, I just drove by this morning. I see the." I said, did you see that wall up there? He said, yeah, I saw it, but I'm concerned. He said, um, that wall needs to be supported somehow because if we get a great wind, it's going to blow over. He said, if I were you, I'd go back and talk to your construction manager and have him put some props up against that wall until there are some other walls to support it. I did that. Later that day, I drove by, and here were these huge pieces of wood propping up that wall, holding it up so that it could stand if there was a terrible gust of wind. And I thought to myself, how many believers need the external supports to make sure that somehow righteousness is built into their lives. And I thought, what a shame, because God has created us to be freestanding moral agents in this world. If you understand God's work in our life and the whole redemptive program, He has built us to have all the equipment that is necessary in Jesus Christ to be freestanding moral agents without the props. The life of Joseph intrigues me. Here he is, betrayed by his brothers, shipped off to a foreign country, and he gets there, and now you need to understand he's all by himself. No pastors, no parents, no Christian friends, no youth directors, no dean of students, nobody around. And he rises to a place of power in Potiphar's home. Potiphar, a wealthy, busy bureaucrat, probably isn't around very much, and I'm convinced that men of that kind of power have their pick of the women of the land. And if you know anything about 
Egyptian history, you know that the Egypt, Egyptians prided themselves on beautiful, sensual women, and Joseph worked in that house day after day. And Potiphar's wife sought to seduce him, as the text says, day after day after day. Until the day finally came when she grabbed him and he twisted out of his robe and he fled the house. And I'm saying, man alive, from whence come men like that? Who, when there are no props, when there is nobody around, no external pressure, can be a freestanding moral agent and please God with that kind of righteousness. Wow. A friend of mine's an itinerant ministry, travels back and forth across the country. He's telling me of the time that he checked into the motel, walked through the lobby, went to his room, went into his room, shut the door, was starting to take his tie off, and there was a knock at the door. He went to the door and opened it up, and there was this beautiful woman. And she said, um, how about a little fun tonight? Who would know? Nobody would come to pick him up till the next morning. And he shut the door. And I say, a free-standing moral agent in this unrighteous world. You see, God has called us to righteousness. Yesterday at Grace Church, we talked about the reality that though we often talk about lifestyle, that heart style precedes that. And that's true. Lifestyle without heart style is no style at all. But it is also true that a genuine heart style produces a righteous lifestyle. We talked about that heart style really consisting of Christ at the core. And if Christ is at the core of your life, he is going to generate and stimulate himself through your life. And what is he? He is above and beyond everything else, totally righteous. And when he is at the core, he is going to stimulate your life to righteousness. That's why you can be a freestanding moral agent, because with Christ at the core, you can stand regardless of the environment. I thought it would be well for us to talk this morning about, about righteousness from the inside out, that lifestyle that is produced by Jesus Christ. And I want you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to look at verses 34 through 40, and we have here a classic confrontation between two systems of behavior. These two systems of behavior are the uh, system of the Pharisees and the system of Jesus Christ. Verse 34, I'll begin reading. You follow along in your text. We read that hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, who was a lawyer, an expert in the law, and we need to stop right here and remind you that this was not a civilian lawyer. This was a spiritual lawyer. The particular behavioral system of the Pharisees needed lawyers, spiritual lawyers, to figure it out and interpret it and apply all the rules. And so this spiritual lawyer tests Christ with this question saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now he makes a phenomenal claim. He says in verse 40, all the law and all the prophet hang on these two laws. Now we need to look at this uh, text in relationship to what is happening culturally. You have here this 
phenomenal confrontation between the pharisaical system of behavior and Christ's system of righteousness. The contrast is bold. The one system is a system that produces a false, arrogant, proud type of righteousness, as opposed to Christ's system, which produces a genuine type of righteousness, one system that is externally imposed, another system that is internally produced. The one system, very complex. The other system, very concise. The system of the Pharisees, a burden to the people. The system of Christ, a liberating blessing to the people. Now, let's give a little background here to this lawyer who comes and says, uh, tell us which is the great commandment in the law. The Pharisaical system was a system, listen carefully, of 613 rules for living. How would you like to have to master a system like that? 365 negative commands, that's a no-no for every day of the year. 248 positive commands, no wonder they needed lawyers to figure out this phenomenal system of righteousness. Christ's system was composed of two rules. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, commit yourself to that, and all the law takes care of itself. Now, for the lack of a better term, I would like to call the pharisaical system of behavior code ethics. The reason I call it code ethics is because it was greatly codified. They had a code of behavior for almost every single situation of life. There were a multiplicity of rules for a multiplicity of life settings. By contrast, I would like to call Christ's system of righteousness principle ethics. And there's a great difference. In code ethics, you have a multiplicity of codes for a multiplicity of situations. Principle ethics... You have a rule with a multiplicity of application. So that you don't need the multiplicity of rules. All you need is the basic principle or a few principles. And you apply life situations on the basis of every one of those principles. So the Pharisees had a multiplicity of rules. Christ had just a few with a multiplicity of application. Now what we must understand is that our Christian lives tend to drift to code ethics. The longer you're in Christ, the more rules you will be liable to accumulate for yourselves. And I have a few observations to make about code ethics that are very relevant to us today because I sense that many times the Church of Jesus Christ is in this drift into the devastating influence and impact of code ethics. Permit me ten quick observations about code ethics. Observation number one, when you're into a code ethic, you need a new rule for every new situation of life. Observation number two, and all of these observations come from the pharisaical system. In code ethics, you normally end up being accountable to the one who is making the rules. And the Pharisees kept making new rules for all kinds of new situations. And the people of Israel began to feel accountable to the one who was handing down the rules. Now, that's devastating because we are, first and foremost, not accountable to people who are telling us what to do. But we are, first and foremost, accountable to the true and the living God and the indwelling Christ. 
And when you get into a code ethics setting, you end up saying, uh, well, I'd better do this because look who's watching. My spiritual authority is watching. Then you get away from the spiritual authority and your life falls to pieces. You are not a freestanding moral agent. The third observation about this pharisaical system is that in code ethics, you lose the ability to spiritually discern for yourself the difference between right and wrong. Because you don't need to, because everybody's telling you what is right and everybody is telling you what is wrong. I'm reminded that the book of Hebrews says that one of the standards of my maturity in Christ is the exercising of my own senses to be able to discern the difference between that which is right and that which is wrong. And again, I am very vulnerable if I do not have that spiritual skill. For when I get away from my setting, when I get away from my code community, then I don't know what is right and I'm not sure what is wrong. And again, I'm vulnerable to the attack of the adversary. The fourth observation about code ethics is that code ethics tends to create a judgmental spirit The Pharisees went around, their favorite occupation was measuring everybody by their standards. And if you didn't measure up, they judged you for it. Even Jesus Christ was found wanting by the judgment of their standard. Fifthly, code ethics tends to confuse personal preferences with biblical convictions. I want to stop here for just a second because we certainly have that propensity today, the Pharisees had what they called fence laws that they had created. That's how the Decalogue could end up being 613 commands. A fence law was a law that would keep you safe from getting too close to breaking the divine law of God. For instance, the law of God says thou shalt not commit adultery. So they said, we got to keep ourselves really safe here. Um, Perhaps a fence law would have been, uh, why don't we say it's wrong to touch a woman? You don't shake hands, you don't pat them on the back, you don't greet them with a brotherly kiss (laughs) or a sisterly kiss. So the fence law would be created to uh, keep you from getting too close to breaking divine law. The problem with the fence law, and those were preferences of, of the Pharisees, is they soon took on the weight of divine revelation so that these man-made laws out here came to a parallel place with God's divinely revealed law, and soon they even became more important. And those were the traditions that Christ often scored the Pharisees about. He said, your traditions are not from God because they gave these fence laws greater weight than the actual revealed laws of God. And I see that happening all the time in the Christian community. I have a friend of mine who's whose friend is another pastor. He was talking with his pastor friend, and his pastor friend said, well, I'll tell you this, at our church, when people sing, they cannot hold the microphones and sing. And my friend said, well, that's interesting. Uh, Why is that? He said, because it's not spiritual. My friend said, I'm not sure I understand. He said, well, it's simple. You watch people in the world singing some of these sensual people who sing and croon into the mic. We don't want to be like the world. And it is our, and he said this, quote, unquote, this is our biblical conviction. And I say, "Uh uh-uh, it's your preference. And his church has every right to establish that preference in in their assembly. But to elevate that preference to a place 
of biblical divine revelation confuses personal preferences with biblical convictions, and a code ethic system is always prone to muddy the waters in that area. Permit me another observation. Sixthly, code ethics in the pharisaical system created hypocrisy and inconsistency. One of their fence laws had to do with the Sabbath. Edersheim tells us this, that, uh, that the, a case was brought to the Pharisees about a man uh, who in his home set down a spoon that had a honey residue on it and laid it against a husk of corn, or an ear of corn. Well, the Pharisees had already established the fence law that husking corn on the Sabbath was a breach of divine law because they defined labor in terms of husking an ear of corn. So that was already wrong. This guy had picked up his spoon, and guess what happened when he picked up his spoon? The husk came off the ear of corn. So that had to be brought before the spiritual lawyers. Did this man break the Sabbath or did this man not break the Sabbath? Well, they sat down, tried to figure it out, and they said, well, if a sticky spoon happens to land against a husk of an ear of corn and you pull the spoon off and the corn is husked, then that's not a breach of the Sabbath. Guess what the Jews did the rest of their history? You guessed it. When they wanted to husk corn on the Sabbath, they just laid a sticky spoon on the ear of corn and pulled it. And what it did was create a great matter of inconsistency and hypocrisy because they weren't in it to please God. They were just in it to try to stay somehow within the letter of the law. I see that happening a lot even today. There was a time in the 60s when... Um, our culture was uh, characterized by a whole movement of rebellion, the hippie movement. And in the hippie movement, they wore their hair long and shabby and they wore beards. And, and so there were some Christians who said, we ought to walk in wisdom toward those who are, are without and we should avoid the appearance of evil. And they refused to have hair over their ears or down on their collars and refused to have beards because they did not want to be publicly misunderstood as being a part of that rebellious culture. And I say that's a pretty good choice. Now, what happened was, is that that preference and application of the principle of God's word gained the weight of divine law. And there are still some groups in the far reaches of the kingdom today who say, if you are really spiritual, your hair is off your ears and off your collar because... That's the will of God for young spiritual men. And I say we've become so inconsistent. We've lost our credibility. That doesn't make sense because the hippie movement is long gone. Those things are not relevant issues for us today. Now, if a group wants to say these are our preferences, that's fine. But when we give them the weight of biblical conviction, we become so inconsistent and hypocritical. We, we wonder about the whole matter of Hollywood and for years the... God's people had convictions against going to the movies. And I am not here to say that we ought to move away from that conviction or that preference, whichever way you want to define it. But uh, what bothers me is that there are many people who say, I would never go into a theater and walk into their homes on Friday night and pull the blinds and watch stuff worse on television that they might go to see in a theater or go down to the video place and rent a video that's RX rated and watch it because what has happened in our inconsistency and hypocr hypocrisy is that the issue is not the rot in the movie theater, it is going to the movie theater is wrong. Number seven, 
code ethics tends to create a false standard of spirituality. I'll tell you, the Pharisees were so clean in relationship to their code ethic. And yet Jesus Christ looked at them and he said, You are like whitewashed gravestones. You look spiritual, you act spiritual, but you are not spiritual. And the Pharisees went around saying, All of our external trappings, those are the measures of our spirituality. Eighth, code ethics becomes a burden. Now, can you imagine really living under a religious system of righteousness that required you to memorize and know 613 rules to live? You'd have to buy a little red wagon and get six volumes of the law and its interpretations to drag around behind you every place you went. And the whole nation of Israel was burdened under the pain and the difficulty of this externally imposed system. Ninthly, this was an externally imposed system. It was not internally generated. And lastly, it was rejected by Christ. In fact, that's the whole thrust of this passage, is that this pharisaical system of code ethics is turned, diametrically turned, by the answer of Christ. And I love the way Christ answers it. Look at what he says, verse 37. He said, you're throwing 613 laws at me and you expect me to come up with the most important one. I'll tell you that the true system of righteousness only has two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Second is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, one thing they shared in common. Notice that Christ called these commands. The Pharisees said God has some rules for righteousness. Christ said, that's right, there are some rules for righteousness. I sense that commands have fallen on bad times in American Christianity today and some segments of it. I think we have a problem with authority. The humanistic culture has seeped its way into our Christianity. And we have Christians who set themselves up as their own authorities and they choose the rules of God that are comfortable and convenient and throw the rest away. We have forgotten, haven't we, that we are to come under the total authority of God and what he sets as the pace for righteousness is non-negotiable. Christ affirmed the importance of commands, standards for what is right and wrong. I think commandments have fallen on hard times because there has been in some segments of Christianity a swing away from legalism, away from code ethics, and we have swung all the way into libertinism. And we have said, we're free in Christ. We have our Christian liberty, which being interpreted is we can do anything we want to do. And anybody who comes down the pike with a biblical conviction is called a legalist. And so what we do is we throw it all out. I think that commands have fallen on bad times because some of us don't understand the doctrine of grace. Some of us realize that God has said that he will forgive us for every sin we have committed, past, present, and future. And so we think uh, that grace is our ticket to license. We say, well, yeah, I'll break the commands of God, but he will forgive me. I think every time we talk about 1 John 1, 9, we ought to remind ourselves what, about what Galatians says. He that sows to the flesh shall reap the destruction of the flesh. And when we break the righteous standards of God, though God totally and always is ready and willing to forgive us, we always reap some consequence. There is always some measure of irretrievable loss when we sin and break God's rules. Always. Though we will always be totally forgiven. 
No wonder Paul said to the Roman church, shall we sin that grace might have bound? God forgive. And that the writer to Hebrews warned those early Christians, do not insult the grace of God. I think we need to start thinking afresh about what God's commands are all about. What are God's commands? When we understand his rules, we begin to understand how valuable they are. God's commands, according to Romans chapter 3, are the revelation of God in, in the flesh. It is what God would be like if he lived here. If God were living in this world, he would not commit adultery because God is loyal and faithful to his covenants and does not break his commitments. If God were here, he would not lie because God is truth and he cannot deny himself. If God were here, he would not covet because he is self-contained. That's exactly why he says to us, don't you be covetous, for I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. When we have him, we have all the resources that we need. And so God's laws really are the revelation of what it means to be like God in this human sphere, in this human existence. I like what Deuteronomy says. Not only are the laws of God the revelation of what it means to be like God in this world, but Deuteronomy says that God has given us his laws that we might prosper. Did you hear that? I think there's a lot of people who think that in eternity past, God said, let's see now, what can we do to make this really tough on everybody? How about a Decalogue? That would be it. Let's give them some commands. I may really make it rough. He says, I give you this that you might prosper. God created this world, this system. He created us, you and I. He knows exactly how it fits together to bring joy and fulfillment and happiness. And he set up his rules of righteousness to make sure we would know that kind of fulfillment and prosperity. My little boy, my oldest boy, when he was small, was an avid athlete. And the best place to play ball in our neighborhood was guess where? Right in the street. So you got to get the picture. I'm sitting in my living room one night. My cap's a little... Or he walks up to me in his baseball cap on. He's got his bat over his arm. I'm reading the newspaper. And he says, hey, Dad, I'm going out to play ball. I'm looking at him. I say, well, where are you going to play? Then we're going to play in the street. I say, well, is that where you want to play? Yep, that's where all my friends are. Well, I'll tell you what, Joe, if that's what turns you on, makes you happy and fulfilled, go to it. And he goes out the door, and I lean back, and I say, i got to be the best dad on the block. I mean, look. I let him play wherever he wants to play. Uh, not on your life. Put my arm around his little shoulders, draw him real close, look into those blues and say, Joe, you may not be able to understand this, but we're going to start here. Your daddy loves you. Number two, there's danger in the street. You see, Joe, quite frankly, I don't want your little body integrated into the grill of a Mack truck. <laughs> so you can't play in the street. You can play ball in the backyard, the front yard. I'll take you down to the park. I don't mind you playing ball, but you can't play ball in the street because I love you. And it so happens that God knows an awful lot about Satan's traffic. And he knows more about Satan's traffic than you do and than I do. And so he gave us his rules that we may prosper and that it may be well with us according to Scripture. He also gave us his rules according to one of the Old Testament words for God's laws. It's, it's his requirements. One of the goals of my life is to please him. I'd love to be his kind of man. I, I could wish that someday God would stop all of heaven, the choir, the, the heart practice, you know, the flying practice, whatever's going on up there. And there's a lot better stuff going on than that. But I wish he'd stop it all, call everybody around his throne, part the clouds, and say, come here, I want you to see something. Look at Joe Stoll. That's my kind of man. Wow. But I realize in order to please him, I have to know what he expects of me. 
And in the Old Testament, the rules of God are called his requirements. I had a father walk into my office a few years ago and say, Pastor, I'm having a terrible time with my teenage daughter. She doesn't come in on time. She does this, that, that. And I don't know why I ever was possessed to ask this question, but I asked him, I said, wait a minute, uh, have you ever communicated to your daughter what you expect of her? He said, nope, never have. I said, you got to be kidding. I mean, you think she's going to get that by osmosis, by eating, eat, eating oatmeal at your breakfast table or something? I'm so thankful that God has made it clear what his standards are so I can know what to live up to and know how to please him. And his laws are the revelation of what it means to be like God in this sphere of humanity. His laws are what keep me prosperous and his laws chart a course for me so that I can look in his face and hear from him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The time is now come that we realize that discounting code ethics does not mean we discount the definite rules of God and we learn to love the rules of God. Because they're a blessing for us. Now, understanding that, we come right to verse 37, where Christ charts for us this first priority principle. You say, well, all right, what does it mean to be a freestanding moral agent? What is that principle that I could personally own that would help chart righteousness out of my life regardless whether I was with people or not with people, with Christian friends or all by myself, if your goal is righteousness regardless, here is the first priority foundational principle, a principle because it's a rule with a multiplicity of applications. And it's simply this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. We don't have time to take these two principles. We're only going to take this one this morning. But know this, that this one combined with the second one takes care of all the righteous requirements of God in your life. I'm so thankful that God simplified the code for me. What does it mean to love the Lord your God? The word love in this text is the Greek word agape. Some of you are familiar with the fact that that is not primarily an emotionally based word. But it is a choice. It's a volitional word. To agape love means to make a choice to do something. I'm thankful for that because I can't imagine that God would command me to do something with my emotions. How unfair. Last night at Grace, we talked about the reality that we can't manipulate our emotions. So that when God commands something for us, it is always aimed at the level of our volition, choices that we can make. And this word agape is a choice to, the word love here means yield it means surrender. It means give to. I like to think of the metaphor of what happens every time I drive onto a freeway in Detroit. I come down the ramp and there's an upside down triangle there. You know what that un upside down triangle means? It means yield. And that's a pretty wise signpost for me. Because moving down that freeway are these 18 wheelers and these berserk drivers going 75 miles an hour, weaving it out. So I don't feel like yielding. And I cut right across the traffic and I'm in a lot of trouble. The sovereign will of God, the charted course of his righteous requirements for me, according to biblical revelation, are like the mainstream, like the traffic flow of the righteousness of God moving down through my culture. And God says when you bring your life up against that, you yield. 
Don't try to cut across his traffic. Don't try to resist the rules. Rebellion will always meet with some form of destruction. We yield and we move ourselves, integrate ourselves into the flow of his revealed rules for our lives. So that I see that loving God simply at the very foundation of it all, according to this word, means that I make a choice and a commitment in my life to surrender to him. See how foundational that is? See how that simplifies it all? I don't need a little red wagon with 613 rules rolling around behind me. All I need to know is that at the heart level, my priority commitment has been to surrender to God. So that when I read in his word, he wants me to do this. I say, sure, Lord, I'll do it. I surrender. And he says, don't do this. You bet, Lord, I surrender. Loving God is that wonderful surrender to him. Now, we've already mentioned that it's by choice. I want to talk about four things that are involved with surrendering to God. Number one, it's by choice. Don't wait till you feel like it. There are a lot of times I must admit to you that I do not feel like surrendering to God. Maybe it's the lust of the flesh. Maybe it's some long-standing dream that I have had and God comes and intersects the dream and recharts my life. Maybe it's some way I feel because of what someone has done to me and he says, forgive them. I say, I don't feel like it. This is a matter of choice. Whether I feel like it or not, I choose to surrender to him. That's what agape love is all about. The second thing I note about this wonderful surrender to him is that it is a continuous surrender. The Greek tense here is a future, a continuous future tense. You see, God doesn't need any daisy pickers in the field of his kingdom. People who go out there and say, uh, I love him now. I'll love him not. I'll love him now. I'll love him not. This is a continuous surrender to him. Thou shalt choose to surrender to the Lord thy God. Continuous future tense. And what I like is uh, that there's a little phrase in here that says, Thy God. Thou shalt surrender to the Lord thy God. You know what that tells me? That's not only by choice and continuous, but that it's a sweet surrender. When I first met my wife, I was a college freshman. And um, we were going to another college campus for a basketball tournament. And a couple of my buddies and I decided, let's ask some dates. But it was in another state. So my friend said, well, my aunt lives halfway there. We'll take our dates. We'll stay overnight at my aunt's house. We'll go the rest of the way the next day. So I'd been, I'd been watching Marty walk around the campus, you know, and I'm thinking, now that's the kind of girl I'd like to be seen with in public. And um, I offered her the opportunity, and I'm thankful to the Lord that she said yes. We'd been on a couple casual dates before. Well, I'll never forget the morning we woke up at my friend's aunt's house. And um, by the way, it was a dormitory approach, lest anybody get the wrong impression. The girls were staying one place and... We were staying another place. And before breakfast, uh, Marty and I got together and we took a walk in the country. Yeah, it was that good. It really was. <laughs> and we're walking down this country lane. And I'm wondering if she likes me. You know, just looking for the signals. And we got down that country lane. And I began to realize that she liked me. 
Yeah, you could just begin to catch the vibes. It's the way she looked. It's the smile. The words. And I want you to know that it was surrender on the spot. I say, Marty, what do you want me to do? Climb the tree? Great. How high? Anyway, how long should I stay up here, Marty? Fine. Lie down, stand up, run, sit down. Whatever you say, sweetheart, that's it, man. It was a sweet surrender. I didn't mind surrender. Whatever she wanted, I'd be glad to do because of who she was. And I want you to know that you and I have been redeemed, that this is our God. Almighty El Shaddai of history has reached down into the territory and turf of my life. And the great redemptive metaphor in Scripture is adoption. Uh, birth is used periodically about coming into the kingdom, but when it speaks about belonging to God, the Pauline metaphor is adoption. There's a big difference between birth and adoption. We've had three babies born into our, our home, and I've gotten stuck with all of them. I, the doctor walked down and said, it's a boy. I said, I don't want a boy. So, well, look, take a look at him. I don't want a boy that looks like that. No, I didn't say that, but <laughs> I had no choice. I was stuck with them. But it's a big difference to walk into an orphanage, see some dirty little kid running around the yard and saying, I choose him to be in my family and to think about God moving into the turf of this world, into this dirty planet, and then walking into the backyard of my existence and seeing me, this scrungy little human orphan, running around, throwing dirt in his face with the ex uh, sins of my life, and to think that the Almighty God would say, I want Joe Stoll, and I adopt him into my family. I'll tell you, it's easy to surrender to people like that. When we think about this, this principle, this rule of God with a multiplicity of applications, the fact that it's by choice and it's continuous, you need to know that it is a sweet surrender. One more observation from the text. It's to be with all our heart. Notice it's a, it's a relationship. I love that. This principle begins with a relationship to him, not a set of rules from him. That I am to surrender to him in a relational aspect with all of my heart, it's an internal thing. With all of my soul, with all of my mind, this happens to be a complete surrender. We're playing baseball, paying baseball players in Detroit a million dollars a year to bat 300. Isn't that phenomenal? I mean, they only have to hit the ball once out of three times to make a million bucks a year. They negotiate their contracts based on the percentages. We need to know this, that when God moves into our lives, that commitment is never a negotiated contract. He does not work with percentages. He comes in and he says, I want all of you. You say, great Lord, I'll surrender except this corner over here, the one where I got the chain across there. Everything but that. And the Lord comes with the hacksaw and begins gnawing away at it. And he says, I want the whole thing. So that it is with the entirety of my being, with all of my mind, with all of my heart, with all of my soul, this internal commitment to a principle that starts with a wonderful relationship to a God who deserves my love and surrender. That principle will carry you all the way through life in righteousness and will make you a freestanding moral agent for him regardless. Surrender? It's not a real easy word, I know that. 
But the issue of life is not whether or not you will surrender. The issue of life is to whom you will surrender. Because every one of us will surrender. We'll surrender to self, to the fleshly impulses that will destroy you. You'll surrender to a negative peer group. Or you get the opportunity to surrender to the true and the living God who is your God. The issue is not surrender, it's to whom will you surrender, the adversary or the king. And this world seduces our hearts. There's lots of competition for your surrender. On that date this weekend, when you're out by yourselves, there'll be a lot of competition for your surrender. When you start thinking about your career, I wonder what I'll do with my life. There'll be lots of competition for your surrender. Fame, glory, bucks, prestige, a great future, a great place to live. Maybe the Lord's drawing you to surrender to some kind of work for him where you can dedicate all of your life in a Christian ministry. easy to get disillusioned. You look at Christians around you, you look at Christian institutions, you look at pastors, you look at other people. It's easy to get disillusioned. I, Peter was disillusioned once. After the resurrection of Christ, he said to his friends at the end of book of John, the book of John, he said, uh, I'm going fishing. And he what, didn't mean he was going to take a vacation. It wasn't a Saturday off to go fishing with his buddies. You know what he was saying? He's saying, I give up on Christ. I'm going back to my old occupation. And some went with him. And Christ met them at the shore the next morning. And Christ called them to the shore. And Christ said to Peter, Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Now, he wasn't saying, do you love me more than these other disciples? I'm convinced he was pointing to the nets and he was saying, Peter, do you love me more than you love these nets, your occupation, your career, your fishing? Peter, what is your priority commitment to what will you surrender? And the Lord still asks that question. Lovest thou me more than all the seductions of the world's system that call you to false surrender? I like what Bill and Gloria Gaither sing. Sing that great song that says, Modern times have brought us many comforts. People live in wealth and luxury. But the master still asks this question. Lovest thou me? Lovest thou me more than these? Lovest thou me more than these, my child? What will your answer be? Oh, precious Lord, I love you more than all of these, more than fame, more than wealth, more than the world. Strong enough to stand in every wind? I'll tell you where it starts. By simply saying, from the inside out, I will always surrender to my God. Let's pray. 
Father, we pray that you will liberate us to the principles of your word that establish righteousness within. Pray that you will teach us to love your commands. And above everything else, teach us to love that one priority rule that applies itself in every corner of our existence by choice, continually, sweetly surrender to you. How we thank you that you're worth our surrender, that there is great joy and liberation in surrendering to one who loves us so much, to the all-wise, all-powerful, eternal one of glory, we praise your name and worship you with surrendered lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.